You may open your Bibles to John chapter 15. Been going through John now for some 18 months. We're all the way up to the 15th chapter. We're going to be beginning in verse 17 on into chapter 16. As you're turning there, I'll ask you if you've ever heard of a man named John Mashida. John Mashida, not a household name. You may not have heard of him, but you've certainly seen him if you're a child of the 80s. He was the dude on the FedEx commercials. Remember that? Sort of the fastest talking man in the world. Now, now, if you're a millennial or you were born sometime after that, no problem if you haven't seen these commercials. You can get the exact same experience by watching one of those prescription drug commercials. You know what I mean? And you know the drill by now. This drug will save your life. I mean, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. It'll clean your house. It'll give you the fountain of youth. I mean, all those things. Then right at the end of the commercial, what happens? The narrator proceeds to speed read, right? All the serious fatal side effects that you might incur on the way to saving your life. Things such as infections, lymphoma, cancer, heart failure, blood, liver, nervous system problems, all sorts of disorders we can't even pronounce and know the name of. It's just a reminder, is it not, that despite this drug's many, many benefits, the drug also comes with a cost. And so we see in our text this morning this same sort of dynamic. And if you've been with us, you know that, that Jesus is using this opportunity in, in this upper room discourse to talk about how the fact that he is going away. And, and we've seen that the dreams and the hearts of the disciples have been absolutely crushed. Because this was going to be their, their big moment. This is what they had been living life for. They were part of the inner ring, the entourage of Jesus. They were coming into Jerusalem. They were going to serve on his cabinet. They were arguing about who was going to sit on the right and who was going to sit on the left. And this was the time they overthrew finally the blasted Romans. And then Jesus breaks out the heartache of all heartaches and says, it's not going to end this way. I'm going away. And where I am going, you cannot come, and you are going to be scattered like sheep without a shepherd. And it tells us that their hearts were troubled. They were in despair. They were in angst. And these past few weeks, we've seen how over and over, Jesus offers this prescription for them, this prescription of comfort. He, he, he goes through this litany of promises of things that they can rely on, lean upon, even though he is going to be physically leaving them. He says, first of all, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit. It's going to live within you. My Spirit's going to go wherever you go, and it's going to dwell with my people. Jesus says, I'm going to, in fact, bring to mind my teachings to you so that you can write them down in the Word for people who come after you in the church, like us, 2,000 years later. Amazing promise. We've seen how Jesus also promised them that he was going to go prepare a place. He, he, was, he was going to prepare this place, in fact, by dying, making a way by his substitutionary death on a cross for us to be with him forever. And so there is a load of comfort. There's a ton of promises. But yet Jesus ends his discourse by giving one more promise. And this promise comes with a warning label. 
Make no mistake, Jesus says, this prescription will save your life. In fact, it's the very best thing that, you can, that can happen to you, that I go away, that I die, and that you follow me. You're going to have eternal life. It can't, it can't get any better than that. But you need to know that it comes with a cost. You, you, know, you need to be fully informed disciples. You need to be fully informed church of God here at Four Oaks Church, what you're getting yourself into. What, what Jesus has promised you by virtue of the fact that you now belong to him. It does us no good, apologetically, to, to promise people that when they receive Jesus Christ and commit their life to him, that all their problems are going away. That he's going to fix their marriage, he's going to fix their parenting, he's going to fix their body, he's going to fix their checkbook. You name, he's, he's just going to fix everything. Three easy steps. If you're a student, you're going to get better grades. If you don't have a girlfriend, you're going to get one of those. I mean, you get the idea. And what we realize is Jesus gives us grander promises than those. But when we bring to our relationship, our commitment to him, a set of expectations that he does not promise, we are in grave spiritual danger. And we've seen it with so many, haven't we, that they fall away. And Jesus doesn't want that to be us. He doesn't want that to be you. He wants to speak this word right into our hearts this morning. And so if you can, if you're willing, if you're able, I'll invite you to stand We're going to begin in verse 18 of John. Jesus is speaking. The words will be on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin." Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. May God write his holy word upon our hearts this morning, and you may take a seat. It needs reminding that John's gospel did just not materialize out of thin air. 
going all the way back to when we started this series, we, we talked about some of the circumstances and contexts by which John put together his gospel based upon his own memory and his eyewitness accounts. Remember, it has been 60 years since this event, these events of the upper room. And John, church tradition tells us, was probably living in Asia Minor, maybe Ephesus. This church, church history and tradition connects him to that place. He was probably a very, very old man by the time he wrote this, in his, in his 90s. He was ministering to a predominantly uh, Jewish Christian audience or church, and these Jewish Christians were struggling mightily. They were being persecuted. They were being ostracized. They were being shunned by their own countrymen, the Jews, and, and they didn't understand why. They thought they were being faithful Jews. We were, we're just trusting in the, in the promised Messiah. We're just... We're just following God where he has led us in the person of Jesus Christ, but those around them would have none of it, and they were shut out. And they were asking questions like, is this the way it's supposed to be? We didn't know it was going to be like this, you can almost hear them say. And they were being tempted, tempted to wander away from the faith. And part of John's purpose in writing this gospel is not his only reason, but one of his reasons is to remind them of what Jesus had promised and said some 60 years before. Now, folks, let me tell you why I think this passage this morning is particularly relevant for us. John is addressing, Jesus is addressing, talking to professing Christians. These, these are the people of the day who were members of their church. They faithfully attended whatever the equivalent of their community group was. That was a in sermon infomercial right there. They were tempted, though, to walk away from the faith. They, they were people who had grown up in the church, made professions of faith, been baptized. They had, they had probably gone to youth camp and thrown their pine cone in the fire or pinned their sin on the, on the cross at the young life camp. And all those things are, are important and, and, and good, but, but they've forgotten one aspect of faith that's crucial for us to understand. Faith, biblical faith, is not a once and one time only decision. It's not a, something that you can just do and then put aside never to think about again. It is a daily choice to pick up your cross and to follow Jesus. But these folks were like the people of Matthew 13. Remember Matthew 13, the parable of the seeds and the sower? And Jesus is talking about how the gospel is, seed is thrown out and there's some people who grow, who take root. But there's a special kind of person, Jesus says, that appears to take root for a time. They're, they're, they're on fire, so to speak. They're, they're, at, every, they're at every choir practice. They're, we don't have a choir, but you never know, all right? But anyway, they, they are every choir practice, they teach Sunday school, they, they start off gangbusters, but when persecution comes, opposition comes, difficulty comes, they fall away. Understand, these are not people who've lost their salvation. These are people who most likely were never truly converted to begin with. Maybe it was emotion, maybe it was peer pressure, Maybe it was the promise for 
a pot of gold at the end of the spiritual rainbow. Whatever happened, though, when the heat was turned up, they said, I don't want any part of this. And so Jesus is addressing this. It's particularly relevant to not only the disciples, but us here 2,000 years later. And so we're going to talk about opposition this morning in, in, in two points. We're going to talk about the origin of opposition and then the outcome of opposition. The origin and the outcome. All right, origin first. Now, if you were to choose one word to characterize what you believe our relationship to the world should be as a Christian, what would that word be? If you could choose one word. And, and, and maybe it would be love, love thy neighbor, and you would be absolutely correct. Or, or maybe, you know, Pastor Paul, God has called us to be a witness to the nations, and that's certainly true. Or dipping into the Sermon on the Mount, Pastor Paul, God has called us to be salt, or he's called us to be light. And, and all those are fundamentally true in terms of what our stance to the world is called to be by God. That is absolutely true. However, the world's stance towards us is something entirely different. In fact, if you could, if you could choose one word to describe the relational posture of the world to us, it is found in verse 19, and it is the word hate. Verse 19, I chose you out of the world, therefore... Because of, as a consequence to, the world hates you. Probably not one you've broken out at family devotions lately, right? Hate, it's pretty self-explanatory in the Greek, to detest, to abhor, to loathe, to despise. All of these things, Jesus says, will be characterizations of the believer's life in this world. Now, it doesn't mean that we go out and we try to get the world to hate us, or we intentionally incite people to despise us as Christians. Jesus seems to be saying something axiomatic, something certain, something just by, by cause and effect, just by virtue of being who we are, Jesus says. The world will hate you. Many of you know we have a, a partnership with Women's Pregnancy Center here in town. They just did their big fundraiser. They raised almost a half a million dollars. It was, it was a pretty encouraging thing. But the mission of that organization, were, and truth in advertising, I serve on the board, is to help women who are in periods of crisis, particularly periods of crisis with an unexpected pregnancy, Many times there are single moms or they will come in with, with their partner and they will be in desperate need, financial, uh, material, and otherwise. And, and, and the mission of the center is to, is to come alongside of these women and to, and to point them towards health, to point them towards Jesus Christ. Understand no one is marching, no one is picketing, no one is being deliberately confrontational. They're just helping and serving. Planned Parenthood announced that it was going to be protesting coming up the Women's Pregnancy Center as it is pregnancy centers all across the the country, and we have to ask why. 
See, it's not merely about life and abortion, although it is about that. But see, the, the Women's Pregnancy Center makes the gospel explicit. The, the Women's Pregnancy Center believes that it's not, not enough just to give human aid, humanitarian aid, although we are called to do that as a love for our neighbors. But in fact, we want to address the fundamental issue in people's lives, and that is their soul. And because Planned Parenthood doesn't believe that should be allowed for organizations receiving funding, and by the way, they're mistaken in that. The Pregnancy Center doesn't receive any funding from the federal government. But just the idea, just the idea of the gospel, that there is one solution to the biggest problems in a person's life between them and God, it's like moths drawn to light. The gospel will attract opposition. And Jesus wants to give an advance warning. That Jesus wants to eliminate any surprise. And he's not zipping through the infomercial. He's not speed reading so you don't really know. And you're like, come again? What did you say? No, no. He wants to make it super clear. In fact, John in his, in his letter, 1 John 3, says it this way. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You know, sometimes we are shocked, we are flabbergasted when Christianity is sort of pushed unceremoniously out of the public square, when, it's, when, when Christian organizations are shut down on campuses at an alarmingly frequent rate. We think that is a strange thing, and if, and if John were here, I'm convinced he would say, that's not strange at all. In fact, it's pretty normal by the rest of the world's standards. It's estimated research that 100 million Christians are estimated to be experiencing real persecution right now. And by real persecution, I don't mean I feel a little awkward at the coffee shop because someone saw me reading my Bible. No, 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 no. Okay. We're talking about physical persecution, economic persecution, political persecution. And sometimes, let's be honest, we, we, we react, we respond to, to reports of abuse and persecution around the world as if it's an anomaly, as if, as if it's something to be fixed. Now, let me say there's, there's a lot of organizations that, are, that exist to help our brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe, and we need to do that with all we can. But what we don't need to do is be surprised. Jesus has promised it. Now, this begs a couple of questions, and we, we want to try to unpack this a little bit more. Pastor Paul, what do we mean by the world when he says the world hates us? You know, there, there's a temptation always in Christ's church to think about the world as something outside of these four walls, right? That, that once you leave the parking lot, you have left the, 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 the sanctified domain of the Four Oaks Shopping Center, which used to be a food lion, by the way, okay? And, and now, we're in the, now we're in the dreaded world. You know, we, we go to AMC Theater or College Town or the evil public schools and, and, ooh, that's the world and we're all sanctified in here. No, 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 no. That has nothing to do with it, okay? The world, as John means it, as Jesus means it, and, and here's, here's, a, here's a definition of the way world is used many times in John's gospel in many different ways and contexts, but here it means this. That part 
of the created moral order that's an active rebellion against God's rule and reign. Let me say it again because it's worth, worth noting. That part of the created moral order that's in active rebellion against God's rule and reign. And when you think about the world in that way and then its manifestation of worldliness, you realize, oh, the home can be a location for the world just as much as Hollywood or a Disney movie just as much as a legal decision or in our hearts just as much as anywhere. See, Jesus says all of these things represent the world. They are things that, that, are in, that live in opposition to God's rule and reign. Do you realize that sometimes we grapple with the world and it's where? In our hearts. It's in our hearts. It's, it, there, there's a competing allegiance that is there. And so when, when we talk about the world, understand it's not just the, the boogeyman somewhere out there. But it's anywhere where there's pockets of rebellion against the kingship of Jesus Christ. Anywhere, many forms, ideas, worldviews, movies, TV shows, interactions between one another. Anything that competes with the allegiance of Jesus Christ, John would call the world and all of those things John says are opposing in opposition they hate the light they hate the gospel and we have to ask pastor Paul why why does it hate the gospel so much why why is there such a hatred for all things christian and the text gives us this answer and it's a hard answer but it's a simple answer look at verse 21 they will do all of these things to you on account of my name. Now that phrase, on account, on my account, just means because of me. So Jesus has said this over and over, and he's saying it again. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, I tried to understand the dynamics of this, and I, I thought about what I was doing around the hours of 7 to 10 last night. I was watching as, as Tennessee played Florida, and for some reason we thought it was a great idea just to give the ball to Florida five or six times just for fun, okay? So it's not going to be hard enough to beat you as it is, but what we'll do is we'll run down the field 55 yards, and right before we get to the goal line, we'll just decide to fumble that out of the end zone. Just, it's just, just for fun, just for the heck of it. But what's interesting is... Tennessee self-destructing is all of you and everybody I've ever known in my life. I'm getting text message after text message and you find, show up on my Twitter feed and I don't even have Facebook and you're trying to find me on Facebook and you're sending nasty messages to me and yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I didn't carry the ball. I didn't do this. Okay. I, I, I'm not on the team. I don't coach. I don't, I mean, but we get it, don't we? I'm part of the family. And you're part of the family of whatever team you root for. We are identified with those who fly the banner over our allegiances, whether it's sports or spiritual or family or otherwise. 
Folks, we got to understand this. We're identified with Jesus because he's our king. We're following him. We are, we are riding under his banner. And if there is no place in our life, and I understand we don't go out intentionally inciting opposition, but if there's no place in our life, none whatsoever, that we don't feel the rub and the, and the, and the rough edge of living a Christ-centered life of following King Jesus, then we have to ask, right? Where's our allegiance? Verse 20, Jesus reminds us, he just, I mean, if, if we, again, if we don't get it, he reminds us again, a servant is not greater than his master. So how, how do we know that Four Oaks is receiving King Jesus? Because they're obeying him. They're following his word. Those who aren't, aren't. That's the reality. But the real question is, and understand this, is, this, is, this gets to the nub of it. Why does the world hate Jesus so much? And by hate Jesus, I, I, I don't mean the domesticated Jesus. I don't mean the, 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 the Jesus that, that you play sort of Thomas Jeffersonian Bible games with, like where you kind of white out all the, all the things that you don't like that Jesus says about judgment and hell and, and, and sin. I'm talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Why does the world react so vehemently? This is what part of John's gospel has been all about. Go back to John chapter 7, verse 7. We're going to flash it up here. Let me remind you. Jesus tells you, Jesus, here it is. This is why they hate Jesus. This is why they hate you. The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. See, Jesus came speaking truth. He came calling evil, evil. Now understand, he, he was full of great news being reconciled to God and grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness. But Jesus said, before you receive that amazing news, that good news, you've got to hear the bad news. You're estranged from God. Who told you, Pharisees, to flee from the coming wrath, you brood of vipers? Jesus came warning them. And let's be honest, this idea of judgment, people find offensive. It's why we don't often hear in the broader world this idea of Jesus as Savior. Now, you'll hear about Jesus as a good person, Jesus as a model, Jesus as a humanitarian, Jesus as a benevolent sort of saint, but you rarely hear in the broader culture this idea that, that Jesus is in fact Savior, and why is that? Because to say that Jesus is Savior means what? It means that you need to be saved. It means it implies, it's, it's an explicit accusation that something is wrong with me. There's something defective about my heart. There's something that's keeping me at odds with God. I don't need saving. Why would Jesus be my Savior? He could be my example. I mean, Jesus can help empower me. He can help equip me. He can encourage me. He can set me free to be myself. But to save me... Ooh, that's, that's harsh. Jesus said it would be this way. Listen to what Paul Tripp has to say about this. He says, in a culture that preaches 
the good news of autonomy and moral relativism, it's counterintuitive to believe that submitting to the law of God results in safety, freedom, and joy. It's counterintuitive. The world will put to death that sort of worldview. That's why the Christian religion has less and less room in the public square because it dares to tell the truth about who we really are. Jesus has, has, has an interesting commentary on this in these verses. He, he just reminds us, and these are my words, not his, it's not personal. It's not personal. It's, it's, it's because of me. And you may say, Pastor Paul, but it, still, it feels super personal, right? When I'm passed over for that promotion, it feels really personal. It's personal to me and my family. When my family members that I'm going to see here in only two short months at the Thanksgiving table, when they won't speak one word to me because they think I'm living in judgment of their life, boy, it really feels personal. And I get it, it does. It feels personal to that baker in Colorado who spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on legal fees simply to have the right to exercise his own religious conscience. It feels very personal, but Jesus says, no servant is greater than his master. And look at verse 26. I'm going to send you the helper. The Holy Spirit is going to live in you. When it feels personal, when it feels like everyone has abandoned me, Jesus says, remember, I am with you. I'm with you. Paul at the end of his life, says, everyone deserted me at my defense, except whom? Jesus. Jesus stood by me. He knows. He is my master. He is my king. That's the origin of opposition. The outcome of opposition, our second point, is found in verse 1 of chapter 16. Let's read that together. This is as close to Jesus gets as as, as saying, here is the purpose of this sermon this morning. Here, Here it is. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. If you're a professing Christian this morning, you need to understand something. That when it comes to your profession of faith, there are one of two things are going to happen and only one of these two things. You will either endure, persevere, and make it to the end, or you will fall away. There is no other option. Those are the only two choices that Jesus gives us here. It's going to be one of those two things. And and understand, this passage is is not something to say, oh, I, I got that. Pastor Paul, there's going to be a little persecution, a little opposition. It's going to be kind of hard, but we're good. No, no, this this calls us to action today. This calls us to a decision point to say, today I am following God, No, no no matter what the cost. Now, the word falling away, look back at your text, is the Greek word skandalizo, where we get our word scandalized. So, so when you say you're scandalized by something, I'm scandalized by my team's six turnovers, what are you saying? That I'm offended 
that it's a, it's a stumbling block, that I, I just, I can't move past it. Literally, the word actually means to be entrapped, to be deceived, to be enticed. What Jesus is saying is that people will fall away, professing Christians, like those that are in this room, professing Christians will, if they fall away, why will they fall away? They'll fall away because they've been deceived into thinking that believing Jesus is some sort of scandal, that, that, that Jesus has somehow let them down, that, that the cost of following Jesus is too high of a cost to pay. They're scandalized by it. Jesus says that's a deception. That is a lie. And depending upon the day and age in which you and I live, that scandal on can take a couple of different forms. And there's two forms that are mentioned in this text. And the first is the one that we most often think about when we terms of opposition. That's physical scandal. So look at verse 2. Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God when they kill you. And this was not just a, a, you know, some, some distant sort of promise to the apostles. All of them, with the exception of John, who is now writing, were martyred. John, church history tells us, was, was boiled alive, survived that miraculously, miraculously, I don't know which would be worse, exiled to the island of Patmos, most likely disfigured for the rest of his life. Jesus says, when they kill you, and they did. Now, we associate physical persecution with a bygone era. But estimates tell us that there were probably more Christians killed for their faith, persecuted for their faith, in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. In all other centuries combined. And here is what all of those methods and groups who persecuted the church had in common. And, and, and by this, let's think about this. In the first century, it was the Jews in the synagogue. Then it was the Roman Empire. Then it was the Roman Catholic Church that persecuted Christians who, through the Inquisition or through the Crusades. There's communism, fascism, Islam. All of these things have made Christians in the exclusivity of the gospel their particular target. This is not arguable. But listen to what Jesus says really drives them. Verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Now that word service to God, latria, it means literally an act of priestly worship. It's, it's, it's something that priests would do in service at the temple. And, and Jesus is implying here that whatever form of worldliness in the world comes at the church to physically persecute it or otherwise, they think they are doing a service on behalf of humanity or a service on behalf of their God or a service on behalf of the common good. It's something to be extinguished at all costs. 
Because if there's going to be some group somewhere, sometime, in some place that says this is not right, this is wrong, and it's something that blows against the cultural winds, it should be absolutely no surprise when it seeks, the world does, to eliminate it. So one, one form of persecution, which, let's be honest, we don't really see and experience that much right now, okay, right now, although with the rise of violence on college campuses and all those things, we, we know it can't be too far behind. So there's a physical scandal. I don't, I don't want to pay the price. That, that, that's too much. But there is a second form of opposition, a second kind of scandal that this text mentions, and this is more social, relational, economic. Look back at verse 2 when Jesus says, you will be put out of the synagogue. Now you may say, well, why is that a big deal? You know, if you, if you, if you don't like your church, you go to one down the street, right? <laughs> Take a rock and you can hit another church in Killarne somewhere. I don't like what's happening here. I'll go there and I'll go there and I'll just kind of church hop and move around and kind of be elusive and no one will know the, know the difference. Guys, there wasn't a synagogue on every corner. There was one in a city. And in the Jewish tradition, when you were put out of the synagogue, it doesn't mean that you were sent to the corner. It literally meant you were cut off from your people. You have oh no economic trade. You can't make a living. You can't marry into, into the Jewish community. You can't worship. You can't eat. You can't fellowship. You are ostracized in every way. It's interesting how the church in the 21st century has begun to respond to this sort of mounting wave of opposition to the Christian faith. There, there are some in sort of the liberal so-called progressive camps of the church that say, well, well, well here's what we're going to do. We're going to simply redefine and reframe traditional Christian doctrine so that it's not so offensive to those people around us. So when it comes to sexuality or the nature of the atonement or the wrath of God or judgment or universalism or, or, or whatever the case, if we can round off the edges, if we can make the Christian faith, faith more palpable, then that will stop the persecution and we can still be kind of quasi-spiritual Christian faithful to God. What's, what's really driving that? Well, I think what's driving it and I don't point fingers just there. I point fingers at my own heart because I get it. There's just simply a desire to be accepted and valued by the world. All of us deal with it. It's always going to be the temptation of the church to try to make itself more attractive. But, but even that move towards weakness only invites more opposition. Because I'll be honest, I don't want to be seen as crazy. I don't want to be the crazy pastor. I don't want to be the judgmental pastor. I don't, I don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. It's interesting, Paul had a friend named Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas traveled with Paul. Demas' best friends in the world, ready, were Paul, Mark, 
in Luke, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament. That was Demas. But at the end of his life, Paul says this about Demas, the apostate. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Why? Why did Demas desert him? Because it was a scandal to be associated with Christ. The cost of discipleship, the cost of obedience was too high. Demas didn't get to be a part of the cool ancient kid crowd, whatever that's called. The inner ring, the, the in the know, accepted by all. See, the big, one of the biggest allures for the affluent church, the affluent church, and understand, guys, in the persecuted church, Liberalism, progressivism, theologically does not flourish. It doesn't even exist. It, it, it evaporates. It's consumed by worldliness. See, student, I see a lot of students here this morning. Let me just say this. There's a scandal involved in the gospel for you. And I know what it's like, been there, um, have kids there, that you are going to be so tempted to believe that who you are is who other people say that you are. And there, there is going to be this insatiable desire. It's a tiger that if you get by the tail, you'll never let it go. That I want people to like me. I want people to accept me. Understanding that in three years, those people, they won't even know your name. You'll hardly know theirs. I understand that because it thrives and lives in my heart. Demas walked away from the faith because he was scandalized. And we can become scandalized too if we don't read the warning label. Now, interesting, and here we're going to close this down. Look at verse 4. It's sort of a way to encourage the disciples, the church, you and I not to lose heart, to not fall away. Jesus, Jesus makes an additional promise. Verse 4, But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Guys, when opposition comes, remember those words. Jesus is not abandoning you. Jesus, in fact, is evermore with you. He's filling you with his spirit. And that spirit, interestingly, as it says in Acts, that spirit, that aroma of Christ, that smell of Christ that you put out, it will either attract or it will invoke hostility. It will, it will either be a, it will be a light, a beacon of truth shining into people's hearts. They're convicted of sin, they turn to Christ, or it will repulse. But it will do one or the other. Because as we come to the Lord's table today, we come showing our solidarity as his people. Do you realize that when you come to the table, you are living out the profession of faith that you once made? You, you, you are saying, I belong to King Jesus. I'm, I'm with him. I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and folks, we need one another. We, we, we can't walk this walk without community, without fellowship, without being together. We're reminding ourselves of this great promise in Luke 9. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And that is a prescription worth taking every time.